Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, the podcast series, with thanks to our friends from Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices, of course, respectively, the Adventist Peace Fellowship and Spectrum. With me for this episode, we have Dr. Murray Jackson as co-host. Hello. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you all. Thank you, Nathan. And of course, Murray is uh, Associate Professor of Practical Theology at La Sierra University and also the co-editor of A House on Fire. As your host, I'm Nathan Brown, and I'm a book editor and a co-editor of the book, this particular book. And joining us, we have another book editor. So that's kind of cool. Um, Dr. Matthew Burdett is book editor for Converge Books. Uh, and uh, is also the gentleman we invited, and we'll get into exactly why and how and all those things, uh, to write the foreword to A House on Fire. Dr. Burdett, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to talk. So just as a way of introducing yourself, and we've just met for the first time in this context, so you can tell me something of your story and your background that has got you to this moment recording this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me give the uh, the two minute two minute personal history. So I I grew up in a um, a mixed race, mis, uh, mixed faith household. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother is from Haiti. She's a Seventh Day Adventist, and so the church I grew up going to was the Adventist Church. And my um, my adolescence was such that I developed a great interest in the Bible. And in the Christian faith, which um, propelled me into studying it academically in college, um, I, I took a very circuitous route through college. Um, I, I think I took a total of six years to finish my undergraduate degree, which is which is a long time. Uh, but it did take me to Southern Adventist University and La Sierra University. And during that time, um, I had a very complex experience. I. I simultaneously discovered that I was not a Seventh-day Adventist Mm -hmm. um, and also that this was a community I cared for very deeply. Hmm. Um, And so um, now, of course, I say this, you know, I'm I'm 36 years old. I, you know, 15 years ago uh, when I was talking about Adventism, I was probably a little more passionate or a little less dispassionate, sometimes (laughs) a little too critical. Um, and at the same time, as I look back, I can see that the times that I was really nasty about Adventism, that that nastiness came from a place of care. Um, I have family who are Adventists. Mm-hmm. Adventism has shaped me very deeply. And so I'm really glad to be part of this conversation, um, even as I have discerned in my own spiritual life that I wasn't going to be at home in the Adventist church. Mm-hmm. Um, my academic work uh, as a doctoral student turned to issues of race in addition to Christian doctrine, um, in, in particular, my my real interest um, was was eschatology, which is no surprise coming from an Adventist <laughs> background. Um, and so, my dissertation work was about the Lutheran theologians, uh, Th- Luther- Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen and his his eschatology. 
as well as the black liberation theologian, uh, James Cone mm. and, and his eschatology. And so I, um, being a person who is half black and half white, um, who is half Adventist and half <laughs> Episcopalian um, and fully eschatological in my thinking, um, it's no surprise that I ended up where I did. And it's um, a real pleasure to be engaged still in the conversation of Adventism and how it relates to the world around us. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So we need to make this connection. Maury, you were a teacher of Matt at, uh, at some stage. What, give, give me that background from your perspective, Maury. Yeah, from my perspective, it, it, Matt is accurate. He's you know half black, half white, half Episcopalian, half Adventist, but he's full soul brother with me because we, mm-hmm. we connected. We connected. He was an undergrad student. I I uh, was beginning as a, a full time faculty at La Sierra University, and and I actually met him at the Hollywood Seventh-day Adventist Church. I was preaching there one Sabbath. We met afterward, and then he told me he was attending La Sierra. And I said, well, I'm teaching there. And the next quarter, he was in a class, the only undergrad in a graduate class. And uh, Dr. Webster told me, oh, sure, he can handle it. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you, one of the grad students was one of the top grad students that had come through the program. And when I was reading the papers, I thought to myself, oh, my God, is this how undergrads think nowadays? I, I'm, I'm going to be a pretender in this. <laughs> I'm in the teaching role here? No, and we, we, we immediately connected. Uh, and Matt became really a part of my family. And that's the way I see him as, uh, as, as really like a, a I'm like a younger uncle and he's an older nephew is mm-hmm. beautiful family is it. We're family. He knows when he comes to California, he stays with, with us. And, uh, and when we go his way, we're, we're looking to stay where they are. So, mm-hmm. but that's, that's on a personal level on a, on a, a level of faith. As I saw Matt really trying to find his home of faith in the Episcopal communion, I also saw a responsibility as a shepherd. And so mm-hmm. this is this might sound strange to many Adventists, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say it this way. In Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus, he says, the spirit is like the wind. You don't know from where it came and you don't know to where it's going. And then he says these words, and so too is everyone who is born of the spirit. Mm -hmm. So I said, hey, I know Matt is born of the spirit. He came out of Adventist Christianity somewhere back in the east. I don't know exactly where. And he's heading somewhere into Episcopalian faith. I don't know exactly where but I know he's born of the spirit and I'm going to be here to be uh, a a journeyman along with him so long as he'll let me. And we have stayed in, in great conversation. So he's part of the reason why when it came to the, the end of this project, I said, Hey, I think I know a good person who can write the forward, who both knows our community of faith 
uh, intimately and, and also can be a, what I would call a fair, critical, and positive critical voice to our conversation community. And yeah, so uh, cool. that's, that's why I pitched him to you, Nathan, and, <laughs> and uh, I think you, 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 see, you can see why, you know. Yeah, that's cool. So before we jump into the, this particular book project, can you tell us a little bit, Matt, about your current day job um, and what you, what you work on? And yeah, put that in some context for us. Yeah, happily. So I, I'm an editor at Convergent Books, which is an imprint at Penguin Random House. We are one of the um, four faith imprints um, at, at, at Penguin Random House. I'm in the Random House division. So um, I work on nonfiction um, inspirational work uh, mm-hmm. or, or uh, thought leaders in, in the faith context, people speaking from a position of faith into public issues, um, I mean, Nathan, you know how this is. You work on um, <laughs> helping people to find their voice or to amplify their voices. And so, you know, I get to see a, a wide array of, of viewpoints, um, a real a real diversity of uh, Christianities, if I may put it that way. Hmm. Most of the time, you know, as an editor, I don't I don't generally agree with the things that we work on. <laughs> um, I often find that you know I would say it differently, or I would take a different I would take a different direction, and and that's a part of the joy of the job, really, for me is is that uh, I like to think that I'm facilitating really important conversations, and mm. so uh, even if I don't often agree with the with the authors that I get to work with. I, I do agree that these are voices that Christians need to hear from mm-hmm. um, and that even the positions that I myself hold today are, are provisional. I, I expect that in five years, I'll believe something a little differently than I believe today. I hope in five years, I believe something a little differently than I believe today. I know Maury hopes that I believe uh, that I will change <laughs> my mind in five years. <laughs> That's cool. You know, yeah. when when I first when Mori first introduced me to your name, I went and um, you know looked up Convergent Books, and uh, yeah, I realised I'd read a few of them, so that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, yeah. We work on some good stuff. So, how did you get into book publishing? Um, you know, when I was a graduate student, actually, I guess when I was an undergraduate student, I I really discovered a love of working on other people's writing, mm-hmm. and um. I mean, I'll just say really, really quickly, I think one, there are two things. I really enjoy the actual work of language and hmm. crafting writing. Also, editing a lot of it's really project management. But, yeah. but apart from that, um, I like to look out into the public and, and sort of ask myself, where is this conversation going? Recognizing that a book can take 18, 24, even 36 months to, to get onto a shelf. Hmm. Um, you're it's always kind of a guessing game with, with publishing. And that, that's actually one of the joys of the job. Mm. Mm. But more, you're going to say, you know, the story here. No, I, I was just going to say, we, Matt was the founding editor of, of a journal, uh, a, a, a student journal at La Sierra university entitled the theology in, in, in practice. And so in the end, he, he really sparked and got the student body engaged in trying to step up their game. And it, it, it transformed the papers that the, 
that the students were turning in because now they were turning in papers that they were aiming to to get into this journal. And that's when I started to see them at work. And, and uh, I even have a, a copy of, of, of a book on copy editing that he had gone through. And uh, as he was going through it, I said, I guess I need to go through this as well. I can tell you a good editor is also a good book reader. Matt introduced me to Slavo Zizek. Mm-hmm. I, I started reading his books because of Matt. And then Matt, uh, I remember when he was going to uh, Scotland for his doctoral studies, he said, came to, came to the house and said, all right, Maury, tell me all the books I need to read and uh, give me a book list. Mm. And I gave him a book list and then he'd call regularly and he'd, fi- you know, engage. He's halfway through one, finished with one, engaging with another. I said, wow. And then it's because of him. I had read a, a good portion of James Cone's books, but uh, it's because of Matt. I finished reading all of them because he said, all right, you got to read this with me because I'm going to do my dissertation <laughs> and engage with him. And so <laughs> I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. Yeah, that's cool. So getting to this current project, Murray, you've touched upon this already, but you know there was a personal connection and that's always helpful when you're trying to get the attention of a busy and important person like Matt. Um, but why was it that you said, you know, for a forward, let's, let's get in touch with this guy? What was it that you were looking for as a contribution to the project from um, someone like, like Matt? Yeah, oh, that's good. I mean, I think in some respect, I wanted a peer, a peer review outside mm-hmm. of our community of faith. And and I I uh I have been invited into Matt's community of faith, uh participated in, in in uh his ordination service. The bishop was gracious and welcoming, uh been in conversation communities around the tables of 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 scholars outside of the Adventist church. When I visited him in, in Dallas, Texas, where he had one of his, his parishes. And so I thought, you know what? He's, he is respected in his community of faith. And I'd like to hear his voice now that he's been away and see if he can help us take an assessment of whether or not we're engaged in the conversation in, uh, in a responsible way. Mm-hmm. And, and it would, I think it would, it would be good for us to hear that. And so that was one of the, that was one of the main reasons, uh, because sometimes when someone is outside of the, the community of faith, and we have found that out in the Society of Adventist Philosophers, sometimes people come assuming they need to say the best things about you, or they come and they, they uh, go online and they find certain weird aspects of the community and they 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 think they're helping to coach you to a better experience of adventism and they don't realize they're not talking to the same people who they grab these online uh, you know uh excerpts from and so i i thought you know to really give us a true reflection someone like matt would be a a, a good voice that's cool. And so then, Matt, from your perspective, you get an email from Murray or a phone call or whatever it was. 
why? What was your interest in speaking back um, to you know the context that you had come from uh, earlier in your academic career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's so much there. So um, one aspect of it, which is easy to miss, but it's it's foundational. Adventism imparted to me a very particular political imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the realities of biblical apocalyptic is the it, it entices people into the sort of temptation to decipher what's going on with imagery and symbol. Mm. And one of the realities, however, is that when you just simply pay attention to the genre itself, you come to realize people in a position of, say, political subjugation are driven to a point where they must talk about their experiences in the language of poetry, in the language of apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the experiences of our world at the points of extremity, extreme poverty, extreme institutional racism, war, famine, those are the pockets where people can't simply speak plainly. They have to speak in this particular biblical idiom. And that's the language that I learned from a really, really young age. And that's the language that helped me to interpret what was going on all around me in the world. And so uh, when, when Maury called me up and told me about this book, my immediate thought was, hey, this is my story too. I'm a person of color who grew up in a world where I had to at least navigate racial identity mm-hmm. and I had to do it through a lens of faith. And what did I do? And the lens of faith was uh, thinking about the book of Daniel, thinking about, you know, three men walking around a furnace <laughs> asking, you know, what would I rather do, you know, live on my knees or, or die on my feet? This is the question that James Cone is asking, too. Hmm. So to me, Adventism gave me the gift of thinking politically. And this is, a, you know, it's ironic to say it that way insofar as Adventism has traditionally not thought of itself as a political community. Um, and of course, by political, I don't mean partisan. I don't mean hmm. I don't mean that its goal is to shape politics, uh, but rather that the language of the Bible, especially in its apocalyptic genres, is an interpretation of the world around you. And indeed, I think most Adventists would acknowledge this, right? That Daniel and Revelation in particular are two books through which you may interpret the world. Mm. Um, they're not just, and they're not just books about prediction, right? They're, they're books about the world that you're living in now. Uh, and so that's a long-winded way of saying Adventism gave me the the tools that I needed in order to think carefully about some of these issues. And so it was only appropriate for me to jump back into the conversation and simply say, hey, here, here are the tools you have that you haven't been using. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I think that's a fascinating summary that you've given of you know, the political thinking in the supposed apolitical Adventist context. And um, yeah, I think that I do. I mean, even in my current, uh, some something that I'm working on currently here in Australia 
is a church's response to a proposed uh, constitutional amendment to recognise our Indigenous peoples. And one of the things that we, the, the kind of ir- ironies that we have is that in the 1890s when Australia's constitution was being drafted and you know, there was like constitutional conventions and so, those kind of processes, there was this tiny little church called Seventh-day Adventists who'd been in the country for about 10 years and had about 2,000 members that was this strident voice from, a, from their religious political background for making sure that Australia was a secular, non-religious country in its constitutional formation, which the irony of that even is fascinating. <laughs> um, it is. That we're involved in the process for the purpose of not involving faith as a part of the process. Uh, and and I, that's something that I'm wrestling with at the moment and just finding a fascinating double standard almost but for good reasons mm-hmm. and and that is you know I, even just what you've said has helped me in thinking about that um in recognizing what's happening there because of course my chapter in the book is the one that talks about our our committed adventist inactivism yes exactly and kind of this assumption that we're not not political at the same time as we are political and and i find that kind of this fascinating um yeah, you know, it's funny. I think one of the things that's core to being a Christian is the belief in the in the efficacy of of speaking, hmm. the power the power of word. And Jesus says that the the truth will set you free and there's no end to the to the uh vindication of that claim. Hmm. In in many ways the ability for Christians simply to to say plainly what's happening around them is incredibly powerful and freeing, and it's it's a political act in so far as what we mean by political is that it it shapes and equips community, mm. and it and it, it it exposes those things that threaten community. And I don't mean community in a kind of idolatrous sense of just, you know, oh, we're just striving for community in some kind of abstraction. But I really mean that it allows human beings to live in authentic communion with one another and with God mm. to speak plainly. Mm. Um, and I think that this is something that Adventists have been very committed to, uh, the ability to speak truly. I mean, I think in many ways, and I again, I speak as an Episcopalian who is comfortable with things like creeds and tradition Adventist aversion to creedalism, Adventist historic aversion to tradition instead of the Bible is is really a caution about human interpreters preventing people from speaking truthfully, right? That in some way, if the church authority tells you to say X, but you read in the Bible that it says Y, you need to be able to say Y, Mm. You need to say you need to say you need to say what you see as true, no matter the consequences. There's something very powerful about that, and very important about that. Uh, that if we live in a world where you are told this is what's happening around you, but what you see with your eyes or what you read in the scripture tells you, no, 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 this is something else. 
Mm. Um, you need to speak plainly. And I think this is why, again, uh, to go back to say something like the book of Daniel or Revelation, you might hear uh, that what's going on around you is wonderful and glorious, um, but what you're actually seeing are beasts, right? These are, <laughs> these are, these are demonic monsters. You got to call them what they are. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Maury, so you were introducing this project to Matt. Do you remember how you pitched it to him? What was the what was the selling point that you know you 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 tossed his direction as far as we would like you to be part of this? Ooh, I, I don't even remember, Matt. Do you remember? I, I mean, I all what I remember, and I, it could be a false memory because this is just our relationship. But I don't think it it was much selling. I think I just kind of said, "Hey, Matt, this is what we're doing. These are the people who are there." Uh, and uh, I think I said, you owe it to Webster and myself. <laughs> <laughs> he called in a favor, right? <laughs> I was at the Jersey Shore with my family. Oh, you remember? I remember. I remember. Oh, I was good, at the Jersey good, Shore good. with my family. And uh, you told me that you were working on this book about you you told me you know a house on fire right you know the adventists need to respond to the issue of race and i just remember thinking yeah that's true that's true um that's a project that's worthy of attention mm-hmm. and um you know to be perfectly honest obviously there's a personal connection there any anything anytime maury calls me up and says hey i have a i have a thing i'm doing i say hey, how do i get involved Um, he only makes it better and in fact matt made it better because if you remember nathan uh we we had the subtitle how adventist faith contributes to anti-racism and and it was matt who said to me hey maury uh the shelf life of anti-racism might be shorter than the substance of these contributions that, that right now is a, is kind of a a buzzword, but you might want to think about a, a different subtitle. And then as we, we bantered it out, we decided on, yeah, how we respond to race and racism. Because, right, you know, in, in future, they may not be talking about anti-racism. It might be here today and gone tomorrow. And so I, I thought that, you know, it, well, every time Matt is involved in anything that I am doing, it it has improved it. <laughs> That's cool. So, so turning to the the substantive content of the book, um, and you're you're responding to it in writing the forward. What surprised you in reading over the chapters? What caught your attention that you would not have expected to be there, perhaps? Well, I'll tell you, I expected it to be a little more monolithic, and I was really thankful to discover that it was not that it was a conversation, that there was a real plurality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Maury was just saying about anti-racism having a, a limited shelf life, the other reality about it, of course, is that the terminology has come to be associated with a very specific set of, uh, of assumptions mm. and, and objectives. And one could say there are uh, there's a plurality of anti-racisms. There's, there's a there's a plurality of ways of responding to mm. race and racism, theologically, biblically, 
socially, politically, and so on. And I was very grateful to see that uh, because it's far from obvious which is which is best. I suspect I suspect that at different times and in different places, different ones are more and less appropriate. Um, each of them bring to bear fundamentally different insights. They're, they're mutually contradictory at times. Hmm. We're dealing with a very slippery subject when we're dealing with race. And so I was really thankful to see that this was a collection of a really broad range of voices um, that were not all on the same page. Um, and that in that sense invited the reader to, uh, number one, notice that fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and number two, uh, engage not just in accepting what somebody else has to say, but grappling very seriously and personally um, with, with what they understand from the world around them and from their faith. Hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly, you know, I, even when I pick up the book now and, you know, of course I've read it pretty closely a, a number of times to get it to this point, but simply the, the breadth of it and the breadth of contributors, the breadth of material covered, you know, every time I pick it up, I learn something new, you know, something that I haven't, haven't thought about before or, you know, I've read over that because I did it for, you know, copy editing or proofreading or whatever stage it was at. Uh, but then uh, when you get to the actual, you can pause there and think about something different. And so there is, it's it's relatively dense, at least in places, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of material in it. And I guess there's all, you know, coming from, you know, Maury and I have discussed that we could have written this book between us, but wouldn't it would not have been as rich and have that breadth that it has and probably wouldn't have had the depth either because if it was just the two of us drawing on our even collective knowledge, wisdom, insights, background, reflections, it would have only got us so far. Uh, But I think what what many of our contributors have have given us their best shot on this particular topic and that's pretty good. Um, so that was something that I am, I guess, constantly impressed by as I refer back to it for various reasons, uh, even in continuing to talk about it in contexts like this. I mean, in addition to that, the reality is that um, there's an important question of reception here. Uh, and the and the fact is that um, this book was very clearly not an academic exercise for the sake of, <clears throat> excuse me, for the sake of, you know, building a CV or something. I mean, th- this was a, a real reflection of the thinking of the church. And I think in this sense, uh, one of the questions that I have is, uh, you know, w- what different segments of the church are, are uh, represented in the book? And, and also, you know, are different people across the theological spectrum in the Adventist church uh resonating with different parts of the book more than others. I mean, in many ways, it's a snapshot of the kind of intra-Adventist discussions and the different ways that Adventists relate to the world around them uh, in, in subtly different ways. Mm. That's a good question. That's a good question. I mean, 
I, I think the the jury is out, but it is definitely uh, engaged. It's uh, it's uh, it's not sequestered <laughs> in the sense of there are there are some. I'm 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 finding out that uh, it's it's resonating differently in different ways, different communities. And they're not monolithic Adventist communities, but uh, but it's yet to be seen. Absolutely, of course. I I think one of the realities, though, is on one end of the theological spectrum in Adventism, there is a height a heightened, sharp sense of the church world distinction. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's interesting is at the very least, the intelligibility of the book depends upon a little bit of porousness. Certainly, the Bible does not have a notion of human races. Mm -hmm. And so any Adventist who can at least assent to the fact that Adventists and Christians and people around the world have been talking about human beings in a racialized way permits a degree of blurriness on that line is blurry between the church and the world. And, and it's a worthy, it's a worthy thing to ponder in, in conjunction with other serious matters relating to Christian identity. And I do think that's an interesting point you've raised there that this isn't Compared to with a lot of the things that Adventists focus on, this isn't a biblical issue per se. Mm-hmm. It isn't, you know, there isn't a thou shalt not be racist. Um, That's right. And, and as you say, it isn't particularly raised as an issue in the way that we engage it or encounter it in the world today. And, and so it requires some, some more tangential reading of the text and, fascinatingly that's what you know it's a very you know i think maury you did the count of the bible verses that are actually referenced in the book and um you know it's a surprisingly large number again showing the adventist penchant for um jumping into the bible as where we begin from and where we ground our arguments and where we grow our, our response to the world around us but also you know that this is the place we go looking for answers to an issue like this even when it isn't explicitly addressed in the text and that's you know there's something fascinating in that observation of that process in on a topic like this that is so specific but also somewhat absent absent from you know the concerns of the text itself it's a, it's a, sorry, I don't know, Maury, you were going to say something. I, I cut you no, off. Well, I was only going to say, I was only going to say this for those who are, are, who, who might hear this podcast and their reading of scripture is maybe, uh, uh, I would say a little more, uh, surface, maybe a little less sophisticated. They might say, well, what about the story of, of Miriam? And Moses' wife, or what about, you know, they might pick certain kind of narratives and say, but aren't these narratives about, aren't these racialized narratives? What, what would you say to that? 
Uh, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's an important question. I mean, I think you could ask the same thing about the notion of Jew and Greek in the, in the New Testament. Right, right. There you go. Certainly, those biblical passages are part of what we could call the ancestry of the notion of race. Hmm. But that the notion of race in its modern usage is, is somewhat different. And, and part of it has to do with uh, breaking out of the boundaries of uh, ethnic national identity into something that is um, more imagined. I mean, I think there is some debate about whether or not um, race is purely a social construct. I mean, certainly there are, um, you could say there are health markers of different racial groups that are, you know, trends that are, that are real and that are useful. Mm. Um, uh, and I don't think we need to go down a rabbit hole of, you know, race realism versus race constructivism. But I think, it, I think plainly speaking, say in American history, uh, for, for what I'm more familiar with, uh, there was a moment in American history where you have this uh, multiplicity of different African nations being kind of blended together into the, the black American or the Negro, um, where in the, in American history, uh, there's a moment where they decide they're going to racialize slavery in a particular way uh, and limit it to those of African descent. And there's, there's sort of a creation in that moment of the black race that doesn't acknowledge certain differences between people. Of course, in our more, in our more recent history, we have someone as simple as Martin Luther King Jr., um, who's, who's, I don't mean he is simple, but his message is simple, right? That the uh, that a person should be judged individually, um, that a person should be treated as a, as a person, not not simply as an instantiation of some larger thing. Uh, but anyway, I think to the to the to Maury's question about uh, biblical interpretation with regard to really what is ethnic identity, we're dealing with something um, subtly different when we're dealing with race. Hmm. Yeah. Indeed. Um, so. Other than fulfilling, a, you know, sort of some kind of sense of obligation towards Murray in responding to this invitation, what were you hoping to contribute to the book in contributing a forward? Oh, that's a that's a wonderful question, and I'm delighted to answer it. I uh, I think Adventists, like any group of people who are small, uh, will vacillate between a superiority and an inferiority complex, <laughs> and um, I think Adventists would do well to see themselves as just another kind of Christian, at least, at least in this instance. I mean, this is a, the reality is uh, Adventist history with regard to race is a moment of, of humiliation for Adventists. It's not a history that's victorious. There are wonderful moments. Um, Adventist participation in, in abolitionism is, a, is, a, is an example of, of, of moral courage and clear and clear sightedness. But overall Adventists have participated and suffered from um, over identification with some of the more toxic aspects of American history and American and American race relations. I think that that's probably the most neutral way to say it. Well, no, I don't mean it. I don't, I'm not trying to say that in terms of being diplomatic. I just mean I, I'm trying to say it in a manner that's recognizable and 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 tolerable to even those who are skeptical of the project. This is at least one instance 
where Adventist Christians were at least less attentive to that church world distinction, which is really vital to Christian and Adventist identity. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are you know, a multiplicity of things that I wanted to point out. One of them is that Adventists have a vocation. Adventism is multicultural. It's multiracial in a way that a lot of other Christian groups are not. Additionally, Adventism is uniquely American. And so it, it, it kind of has a, a certain theological moral responsibility to grapple with some of those things that are, let's call them kind of particular American pathologies, um, of which, of which uh, white supremacy came to be one particular thing. And, and obviously America is not reducible to white supremacy, but that white supremacy um, cannot really be talked about without talking about American history. That's what I would say. Um, and in that sense, Adventist history is sort of bound up with that. So I think one, uh, one thing is simply that Adventists have an opportunity to deal with something in a, in a way that a lot of other Christians would love to deal with this, this issue. I mean, uh, I, I'm an Episcopalian, right? The Episcopal church is like mostly old white people. Mm-hmm. At least anecdotally, that's my experience. It's also, you know, in, in enormous decline. Uh, Adventists being such a diverse community, there's a wonderful opportunity to just say, hey, this is an area where we can, we can try this out. We can experiment with different ways of talking about this and trying different models of, of how to be Christian in relation to this, this real issue. Hmm. Um, the other, the other reality is that um, the church has been divided. And I, I, I've said this before, and, I, and I'm happy to say it again. The church has been divided in a lot of different ways throughout history. The divisions that we are most familiar with today are denominational differences. But anybody who's paying attention can acknowledge the differences in denomination mean very little on the ground. Anybody in pastoral ministry knows that. Hmm. Most Christians don't have strong identification as Presbyterians or Methodists. Uh, most Christians these days are identifying as progressive, conservative, liturgical or non-liturgical, sacramental or non-sacramental. Uh, and indeed, one of the major fault lines in Christianity has been race. Hmm. And I think a part of it is simply that as a, as a Christian, I am committed to Jesus's prayer for his church, that we would all be one. Um, this to me is a mandate uh, that we deal seriously with what's actually dividing us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the answer. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, I wish that I did, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm convinced that Adventists, have a role to play in, in talking about this. Hmm. Hmm. So we're kind of getting towards the end of our conversation, the time we have. Um, so I have a question for both of you, and Maury, just to give Matt a chance to catch his breath, um, I'm going to throw it to you first. From your perspective, and Matt, i follow up with some thoughts from you as well. Why does it matter? And I can. I think there's two ways to to look at this. Why does it matter to the wider world that Adventists would speak on an issue like this? And 
what are the opportunities that come when Adventists choose to address themselves to an issue that is bigger than just our own little uh, denominational bubble or however you, or our own community of faith, however you want to talk about that? Why does it matter for the world and for us, for us to speak into the wider world and into an issue that is something that is much bigger than us? That's a great question. I would say it's important to watch. It's important for everyone to watch a developmental stage. You know, if it's of a child it, moving into adolescence or an adolescent, adolescent moving into adulthood, it's, it's even more precious to watch a community of faith coming of age, and to see uh, the project again, the new hope again, that comes in that process. You see a, a baby come, you say, ah, there's hope. Let's see it. Uh, some of the flaws of the older generation may we can get rid of or see, see uh, 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 have a new expression. And I think Adventist Christians are a young movement of Christians who are in many ways going through the the same development that the the history of Christianity has gone through over a longer period of time. We're we're having this rapid movement in some of the same issues of trying to understand the nature of Christ and all these kinds of developments. Uh, not not getting that as well, but in some areas, some some are getting it well, others not. But to take a social issue from a, a community of faith that has spread quickly around the globe and to say, hey, we think Christianity can actually help us model, help us model not just how to live it out, but how to discuss it, how to converse, how to dialogue about it, and how to do the, them both together. And I think it, it's important just, just to be a witness to this coming of age. And this uh, maybe ray of hope for a better human com community, hmm. and I believe that that's a, a live possibility. I believe that's a live option, and I, I believe this this book is a good is a good uh, token for that. I, I'm grateful, Nathan, that you invited me on to try to help build this collection of scholars and. And to leave a, a record, and we'll see how it goes. But I, I, I have a, I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope when I see uh, a professor in the seminary uh, in missions say to me, "I need that for my classes because uh, I teach world missions for Adventism, and there's no textbook that that addresses a question of race." that comes from Adventist voices around the world. This can help me in teaching our, you know, missions. And when you just hear the, the diverse voices chime in within the community of faith, I feel that, that there's a hope that maybe we can raise the bar. Maybe we can kind of be a antidote to the pathology that is a uniquely American pathology as it is manifested in a uniquely American denomination. Hmm. Cool. Matt, why do you think it matters for this, 
you know, assorted group of Adventists to be raising their voice. You know, is it kind of pretentious of us to think we can actually meaningfully make a difference in you know such a big issue in such a big world, or you know, does it actually matter that we make this kind of contribution? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I I would put away very quickly any fear of pretension. <laughs> all of us are doing the best we can. Mm. And that's all we can do. I, in some respects, have a little less optimism than Maury. Um, <laughs> in other respects, I, I share it. I mean, I think uh, the, I've been I've been thinking actually about Maury's uh, preference for this language of coming of age. I, I was I took a walk this morning and I was thinking about it. I was anticipating responding <laughs> to it. <laughs> and um what i thought was just simply you know it requires a knowledge of one's own history a recognition of failure mm. a recognition of one's own inevitable demise that one is not final and in that sense it's very hard for adventists um you know how how long can one go on proclaiming the immediacy of the uh, of the second coming without eventually saying, you know, we're going to keep preaching the, the the nearness of God, and also acknowledge that life for us may end. Hmm. That, that's an important moment of in coming of age, and and I think the the reason I bring that up is to say, you know, our world is afflicted by many things right now. And I think that race is one of them. It has been for a long time. I think that the theological question of our time is what it is to be human. I, I'll tell anybody who will listen this this observation. I think that in many respects, you look around Christianity across the board, regardless of uh, you know whether it's Catholic or evangelical or mainline Protestant, churches are torn apart over questions of gender and sexuality and race. These are all questions of, of, of anthropology and not just anthropology, but also the ends of human life. Mm. And one of the realities, at least in the, you know, North America is that uh, Christianity is in decline numerically. There are fewer and fewer Christians and those who are uh, don't rate it very highly among their priorities. Uh, so the reality is we're dealing with a spiritual crisis and the church has an obligation, if it in fact believes the gospel, uh, to speak that gospel to the to the issues of the day. Um, so, I mean, wh- why it matters to me is that I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe that uh, he gathered to himself uh, a communion of that is called the church, that is across the nations, that is of every language. Um, and that the end of human life is our communion with each other and with God. And this is the thing uh, that is dividing people. This is the thing that is keeping them from human flourishing. This is the thing that is keeping people from knowing God. Um, not just race in particular, but what it is to be a human being. Um, you know, the fact is, you know, for example, these days we're talking about artificial intelligence. Um, which is not a reflection of our technology. It's actually a, a reflection of the poverty of our own view of ourselves. Right. That, right. That, that we think that these, we're, we're only doing what these computers are doing, which is sad. We, you know, we should be 
doing better. We should be doing more. Mm. Um, we've lost touch with what it is to be human. And Adventism, I'm going to keep coming back to this as, a, as an outsider who's got a lot of hope in Adventism. Adventism from, from its early days was very invested in talking about what it is to be human. I mean, these, these little embarrassments like fixation on diet or the necessity of rest or the integrity of the human person as a body and soul. What, what's the next thing? Can't Adventists see that this, this question of, of race is, is a same, it's the same conversation. It's up against the same, the same enemy, that which seeks to divide a human being from itself. Mm. Yeah. Nathan, Nathan, you see why I asked us to bring Matt in on this project. That's cool. Dr. Matthew Burdett, thank you for your contribution to the book. Um, you know, I value your presence there in the forward and uh, the voice that you've contributed to some of the other discussions we've had. Thank you for your for sharing with us and taking some time today for this particular episode. And um, yeah, definitely appreciate your insights, your reflections, and and the sort of the knowledge and appreciation that you have for Adventism and the broader perspective that you bring to asking good questions about that. So thank you for being with us. Thank, thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation. And Dr. Jackson, thank you also for joining us and for um, introducing me to Matt. That was, you know, it's been one of the privileges of this project for me to get to know a whole bunch of good people, and Matt is certainly amongst them. Uh, thank you so much. Matt, tell Margo Uncle Maury says hello. <laughs> that's cool thank you for being with us on this episode of a house on fire the podcast series thank you to adventist peace fellowship and spectrum for hosting us and broadcasting these conversations and we'll be back next time with more as we continue to explore the book a house on fire yes i knew sister white we will not fear I'll never forget it.